With great power comes great responsibility. Compromise where you can. Where you can't, don't. Even if everyone is telling you that something wrong is something right, even if the whole world is telling you to move, it is your duty to plant yourself like a tree, look them in the eye and say no, you move. Never step onto the battlefield of ideas unprepared. Before you enter the fray, you need a plan. And there's no better place to get one than right here on Tactics with host Caleb Colquitt. The Situation Room goes live now on News Radio 1440. Hey, everybody, and welcome into Tactics, where speech isn't violence, tolerance isn't love, and disagreement isn't hate. Welcome to the program. I know that this is not my regular broadcast time. This is an episode I never thought that I would do. Like I told you in the previous episode, I had every intention of just doing a handful of final episodes, and I actually have a couple of them already recorded that were going to be very, uh, you know, worldview, that kind of thing. But I felt like I really had to do tonight's episode because I have a special connection to the Ukraine. If you look at my Facebook page right now, you can see where I've done lesson and mission reports on Ukraine in various churches or around the state of Alabama and even in, in other states. And that is because I'm a missionary to Ukraine and have been there several times. I've been going there for four years now. We had to skip a year for COVID, so I've actually only been there three times, even though we started four years ago. But Ukraine holds a very special place in my heart, and I am just devastated about what has happened in the past 24 hours late last night, which would have been early in the morning from them. It's it's almost reversed. It's uh, I believe they're nine hours ahead of us, So, um, which, by the way, causes quite a bit of jet lag when you actually go over there and then come back. But, you know, that's neither here nor there right now. So... Based on all the reports that I'm hearing, for those of you that may have had a busy day and, and weren't able to keep up with it all day like I did, uh, just kind of had it on in the background while I was working today, uh, it's not good. This is far worse than anything I predicted. In fact, you may be expecting me to come on here and, and you may be expecting because I'm a political pundit and because I have some inside info in, and, and insight into Ukraine that a lot of people don't. You may be expecting me to be able to tell you what's going to be coming next. And I would love to be able to sit here and play that role. I would love to be able to sit here and talk one on one with you and say to you, hey, th this is what's going on. This is what I think is going to happen. But I can't do that. And the reason that I can't do that is because, frankly, pretty much every prediction that I had about what was going to happen has been wrong. I'll tell you some ideas about what I think might happen, but I got to be honest, this is one of the few times I have to look at you and say, take my predictions with a grain of salt, because obviously I made some miscalculations on what was going to happen earlier. And, and I think that that was true of pretty much everybody. I mean, all the national talking heads got this wrong. So far as I can tell, everybody in the State Department got this wrong. What we thought was going to happen, that might be the best place to start out, just kind of contrast what, what I thought was going to happen versus what actually wound up happening. So initially, what I and a lot of people thought was going to happen is that Putin was going to invade the, the areas that are more sympathetic to Russia, that would put up less resistance to Russia, and has a lot of a high population of Russian sympathizers within the borders of Ukraine. And once that happened, 
I thought potentially what was going to happen then is he would probably annex or take over with military force because there would be some resistance. There are some proud Ukrainians in those districts. He was probably going to kind of take over them and occupy them in a very similar way that he did for Crimea and then let that be it for a while. Now, Putin has always had ambitions and he wants Ukraine. He wants Ukraine to be completely controlled by Russia. And so there's no question that that was his end goal. But just because that was his end goal does not mean that he was not going to take incremental steps along the way. But that's not what happened. In fact, what did happen last night, there's no other way to describe it. Ukraine is at full open war with Russia. It's like that scene in Lord of the Rings where Aragorn is talking to Theoden about what they should do next when dealing with Sauron. And he says, well, I would not risk open war. And Aragorn looks at him and he says, open war is upon you, whether you would risk it or not. Basically, he's saying, this is the reality. You need to deal with it as it is, not how you wish it to be. And that's kind of what's going on here in Ukraine. I thought, and a lot of other people thought, that there was going to be some kind of incursion in those districts. Now, what I personally thought was going to happen is that what Putin was going to do is act like he was going to launch a full-on uh, a, a full infestation of Ukraine. I mean, just have a invasion forces at the ready, make it look like he was going to invade, and then wait for somebody to give him just a little pushback, and then it's almost like a flop in basketball where he throws his hands up and, and cries foul. And he was going to use that as leverage to say, well, now they're pushing back. I'm going to stop. And then that way, because Putin is a strategist like I am, that way he makes them feel like they actually won. And then the West sighs a big sigh of relief. Okay, we're, we're not dealing with open war between Ukraine and Russia. And then they just let him get away with whatever he wants because initially they thought he was going to take the whole country. And because he only took you know, certain districts that are more sympathetic to the Russian cause and were kind of already somewhat controlled by Moscow anyway, definitely had heavy Russian influence, that the West would sigh a sigh of relief and they wouldn't give Putin any grief after that. But that's not what happened. What actually wound up happening is he launched this full-scale and uh, he launched this full-scale invasion of Ukraine. And one of the reasons that I obviously was deeply concerned and have been praying for quite some time now for the conflict between Russia and Ukraine to cool down, I was less worried about the people that I personally know, not because I thought that that wasn't going to affect them, but I knew that it was going to affect them to a lesser degree. Why? Because the area where I operate and do mission work and, and go and visit my friends is largely in Western Ukraine. It's in the Ivano-Frankivsk region. It's almost as far as you can possibly get from Russia. And so because of that, there was significantly less risk of something that Russia did over, for example, when they invaded Crimea, of really having an effect on the day-to-day -day lives of the people that I know, my brothers in Christ that are over there going and visiting with for several years now. So that's what I thought was actually going to happen. Uh, and obviously, uh, if Putin continued to do that, that was going to affect them at some point. But it wasn't going to affect them in the immediate what was going on right there. But that's not what happened. In fact, I got information from a friend of mine there. I know that all my friends can't contact me because obviously they got more important things to deal with. And on top of that, there's probably significant internet outages in where they are in Ivano Frankivs. Uh, they told me that they 
the airport and very installments not far from where I was, which is really concerning number of levels as you can imagine. This is the airport that I flew into. Well, actually, I flew out of the last time that I went. The, the one that I flew into was in Lviv, and that was also bombarded last night. And so it's very bizarre to be able to look on TV. This is something that has never happened in my lifetime. I can look on TV, and I can see places getting attacked, and I recognize the places. Like, they showed a shot this morning on CNN of Kiev. And when they, they showed this particular shot, I've been to the place that is directly in front of where the explosions were happening. Like I recognize the setting. In fact, I think I have a picture somewhere on my Facebook page of me in front of one of the statues that this is taking place. It was very bizarre to see a place that I've actually been now being the place of conflict in, in the Ukrainian capital. I didn't think that Putin was going to go nearly as far, at least right now. I thought he was going to bide his time and make some progressive incremental advancements and then eventually get to Kyiv. But I actually saw locations in Kyiv that I have been to personally, having explosions go off right behind them. And so you can imagine the effect that this has kind of had on me and, and the effect that it's had on people that I know. And so before I go any further on anything else, I would just ask to please pray for the people of Ukraine. There are just, I mean, phenomenal people over there. Uh, and the thing about the Ukrainians that I have noticed, um, obviously I'm, I'm most concerned for my brothers and sisters in Christ over there, the, the church folks that I've met over there and the people that I've helped teach the gospel to. But I'm also quite concerned for the other people. And, and one thing that I've noticed about them, whether they're church folks or not, the Ukrainians have an incredibly strong spirit. They are very nationalistic in their view, some of them so much so that I think it's actually a little too much. But they have a lot of national pride and should. They have a fantastic country. And I've been very concerned recently about this, obviously. But I do know that even if the worst happens, and Putin has this invasion, and it's successful, and he's able to take a lot of these areas. If that does happen, then what we're going to see is the Ukrainians are going to fight back. See, there is a difference, and I'm going to make some political comparisons in a second, but for now, let's just look at the situation on the ground. There is a profound difference in what happened in Afghanistan and what happened here. Because part of the reason that Afghanistan was able to be taken over so quickly and without a whole lot of pushback is because a large percentage of the Afghan people do not want freedom. They don't. They do not care about freedom. Because the second that they had the opportunity to vote in a government that they wanted, it turns out the government that they wanted was Sharia law. And when they left, the Taliban was able to take over. And it's true that a lot of Afghanis do not like the Taliban. That is certainly the case. But when you have a country that is like, if I remember my, my pew poll correctly, 93% of the country supports the idea of the, the country being run by Sharia law, you know, where you have to have at least four women to equal the testimony of one man. And women are basically treated like property and can be stoned if they're seen in public where their hair is showing. I mean, ridiculous, crazy rules like that. You cannot force freedom on a people. 
And that was part of the problem with Afghanistan is those people do not want freedom. They do not think like Westerners. Ukrainians, for the large part, do. And I'm not saying that there aren't some cultural differences, because there certainly are, and I was made abundantly aware of several of them in the, the recent visits that I've been to that country. So the cultural differences are certainly present, but the thing is, there is a desire for freedom. There is actually a very strong desire for freedom and independence. They don't, they're not Russians. They don't like the Russians. This ridiculous speech that I saw Putin giving the other day, where he was talking about, now granted, he was talking about the regions where there's a little bit more sympathy for, for Russia and there are more people that support Russia, but that's still a minority, even in those regions. He was saying that, well, Ukraine really is Russia and they've never existed as an independent country. They've always been Russia. We're the reason that they exist. And ultimately what's going on is, is the Ukrainian people want to be Russians. I'm like, I don't know what Ukrainians you're talking to, but every single one I've ever had a conversation with about this. They don't like Russia. They don't want to be part of Russia. They actually get insulted if you confuse them with Russians. Like if an English speaker runs into them and hears their accent and thinks, oh, you must be Russian because your accent sounds similar to a Russian accent, they get offended by that. In the same way that a Southerner, when going over, actually it's stronger than this, but this is the closest thing that I could think of in America. When a Southern goes over, Southerner goes overseas and someone refers to them as a Yankee, we get offended by that because we're not Yankees. Yankees are people that live up north. That's not something that we have in the South. Well, amplify that by about 10. I mean, it would be almost like uh, to them, it would almost be like hearing a Southern accent and hearing, oh, you must be German. Like that has a negative connotation for us even more so than a Yankee. But that's the kind of thing that it is. They think of the Russians as being the Soviet Union still. They think of them as being uh, the Nazis. That that's the equivalent to the way that they see we see them in in American culture. The way that we see Nazis, that's how they see the Soviet Union, and that's Russia. And so, in their mind, that's something to be very offended by. And so, just to give you a little bit of cultural backing there, they they don't want to be Russian. Don't believe that when Putin says that they don't want to be Russian. They have no intention of ever being Russian. They liked being an independent country. They have a lot of national pride. Frankly, far more so than a lot of Americans that I've run into. Uh, one of the things that Doug and I, my partner in crime, when I was going over there, we just like the apostles, we travel in too when we do mission work. And Doug was was the other guy that was going with me to this particular village. Uh, one of the things that he commented on, and I reflected that same sentiment, is one thing that we were very impressed with is uh, patriotism is something that is ingrained very early on. It's taught to school children. National pride is a very big thing. They, they love Ukraine and do not like Russia. They see Russia as the anti-Ukraine, the enemy of Ukraine the biggest threat to them. And clearly, based on the past 24 hours, that is the case. That was true before that, but uh, even more so based on recent events. But as to what should be done now, I'm going to be honest. My emotions would tell me that there needs to be a nuke hitting Moscow in the next 10 minutes like that. I'm not saying that's what we should do, I'm saying that from an emotional standpoint, if I were just going strictly on my gut, that's what needs to happen because Russia needs a punch in the gut to knock it off. But I know that that's not the best thing to do right now. I'm not saying that uh, what we are doing is adequate, and I'll get to that in a second. But if I were just strictly going on my emotions and instead of my rationale, that's what I would want to happen. I want them to have a an air raid strike or something. America needs to retaliate in a way 
that is overwhelming, severe, and actually, I hear a lot of people talking about, well, a response should be proportional. No, it shouldn't, because a proportional response is inadequate. We actually need a greater response to the attack than they have launched. And that's actually, you know, again, strictly from an emotional standpoint, that's where my, that's where my head is at right now. Uh, there needs to be a, a, pro a proportionately bigger response so that they know to back off and to not try something stupid like that again. But I don't think that that's feasible. And at this point, I don't know that that wouldn't even escalate it. And that's why I'm, I'm somewhat hesitant to just go with my gut reaction, because I'm afraid that if that happened, that would actually be worse for the Ukrainian people. So, the, I think that the response should be something of a military, some kind of military response. I'm not saying exactly what that should be. I think something akin to what happened with the air raids in Syria when they started acting up a few years ago, I think that that's pretty proportional. And by that, I mean it was something that hit a military target. It certainly injured the military that we were targeting in, in that they lost assets, but they also didn't really lose people. And it was really more of a sign that if you want to have more of this, then just keep doing what you're doing. I think something on that level, probably greater just because Russia is a bigger threat than Syria, I think that that's really what ought to be done. But I understand, and in my my rational mind, especially being someone who's kind of an isolationist on most things, um, that is kicking in to a degree. But the truth is, and, and this is where a lot of this comes in, part of the reason that I feel some responsibility and that a military response is warranted is because we are already involved. We have already played a part in this conflict. And to know that, you have to know your history. Because if Ukraine was just any other nation and America didn't really have a vested interest in their security, then I'd say, look, I hate, I hate it for them. I'm worried about them. I pray that there's an end to it soon, but you guys are on your own. The reason that's not an appropriate response with Ukraine is because of the history there. Back right after the Cold War, Ukraine had the third largest nuclear arsenal on planet Earth, directly behind Russia and America. So they were third. And they had control of that nuclear arsenal. This wasn't like just, you know, it was, you know, Russia had the nukes there, but really they were Russia. No, that's not the way it was. Ukraine had control of these things. And what happened is, because there was this insanely idiotic policy and sentiment that was going around primarily, not exclusively, but primarily in the Democratic Party, that if everyone would just throw their nukes away, then the world would be great and there'd be sunshine and rainbows and lollipops and everybody would love America. This is incredibly stupid and naive. But that's the sentiment that they followed. And because of that, what America did under the leadership of President Bill Clinton in 1994 was convince Ukraine to give up their arsenal. And here was the bargain that we brokered to get them to do that. We said to the Ukrainians, look, guys, just give up your nuclear arsenal, get rid of it, give it back to Russia. That was the dumbest part of the uh, agreement, by the way. Uh, just 
give that to them so that we have one less nuclear power on the planet to worry about. And then don't worry, we'll back you up if Russia ever attacks you or shows any aggression. We're going to be your big brother instead of the nukes being your deterrent of Russia uh, to keep Russia from attacking you. We will be the deterrent. And then Russia won't attack you because they're scared of us. Okay, well, that deal works as long as America is big and scary and does exactly what we say that we're going to do. But we're not that anymore. Putin, especially after the Afghanistan debacle, he sensed weakness and he sensed that Americans had no appetite for war, that we would basically do anything to stay out of an open armed conflict. And unfortunately, I think he's probably right in that. I do not see any appetite. I don't know that there's really anything he could do. Like he could take over the entire country tomorrow and declare Ukraine a part of Russia. And I really don't see NATO doing anything other than sanctions. And I hate to say that, but I think that that's what's going to happen. And so basically what we did was it would be almost like the reason that Ukrainians were willing to take that bet is because they thought, well, we have the third largest arsenal, but if we have the backing of the U.S., they've got the biggest arsenal. And so really we're making a trade up by getting America on our side by giving up our nukes instead of having nukes ourselves. This is why it's better to have a pistol on your own side than a rifle on the side of somebody else. Because even if you have an ally with a more powerful gun than you, you still need a gun to protect yourself. That's the way this rationale works. And it's kind of a, a bird in the hand is worth two in the bush kind of thing. I wish that America was an ally that people could count on. But after what happened in Afghanistan, where we just literally abandoned pretty much everybody that had ever helped us and left them to the uh, to, to be destroyed and killed and raped by the Taliban. And I'm not using that figuratively. Literally, that's what happened to American allies because we got out of there so quickly. And we knew that that was going to happen beforehand. We know that based on some freedom of information requests that have been made recently, some investigations that were done. We knew that that was going to be the result, that our allies, people that helped us, people that translated for us, people that actually acted as spies for us, and some Americans as well, we're going to have that happen to them, and we still abandon them. And that's what we're doing to Ukraine right now. We were the ones that made the promise in 1994, look, if, if Russia ever messes with you, don't worry, we're going to be there to back you up. And it's clear that we're not. I hate to say that about my country, but that's exactly what's going on here. Any other country, same thing happens with Russia. Like if that happened to Romania or something like that, I'd say, look, I, I hate it for the Romanian people. I feel sorry for them, but we have no obligation to back them up militarily. Ukraine, we do, because we made them that promise. And if the world looks at Ukraine and sees that our word is worth nothing, that when America says that we're going to do something, but all of a sudden it becomes inconvenient or costly for us that we back out, all of our allies know that our word isn't good anymore. And so it's actually far more costly not to do something right now. And this idea that sanctions are going to be enough to deter Putin, I'm sorry, that's ridiculous. You see, Unfortunately, people in the West, and I do think that the West is a superior civilization, don't get me wrong, but unfortunately in the West, we have this ridiculous idea that everybody thinks the way that we do, 
because we think, oh, well, you know, the second that there's some kind of economic turmoil over in Russia and people, you know, have to pay more for gas and they can't get their groceries and they, they're not living in as nice a house as they used to. That's going to be something that is going to be unsustainable and their people won't stand for it anymore. And then Putin will be forced to back down. That's not the way other people think. In Russia, when he promises them some kind of delusion of grandeur, I mean, you look at recent polls, for example, the majority of Russians still believe Stalin was a good leader. Yes, communist Stalin that starved out 50 million people at minimum, they think that he was a good person to lead Russia. And that's the reason that now Putin doesn't really win by the numbers that he, he appears to in the polls. He's obviously rigging the vote there. But my point in all of that is, despite that, this is why the people of Russia in general do support Vladimir Putin. Because he is a thug and he is a dictator and he is a Bond villain. And they want that. They want to be seen as a world power. You saw it in Putin's speech just a couple of, of days ago. He talks about it's a bad thing that America is the world superpower and that everybody basically has to do what they say. And what really should be going on is that Russia should have more of a say in world affairs. That's a very bad thing for every other country in the world. But that's how Vladimir Putin sees it because he wants that kind of glory. He wants that level of grandeur and national pride. And a lot of other Russians want that too. That's why he's imperialistic. That's why he wants to bring back what he views as the height of Russian civilization back under the USSR. That's the reason that he said that the USSR uh, being destroyed was the greatest geopolitical crisis, the greatest geopolitical tragedy of the 19th century or of the 20th century. That's how he thinks. And because of that, he's trying to get the band back together. And one of the first steps to doing that is taking Ukraine. And so that's where we stand right now. We are dealing with a psychopathic murderer who his greatest aspiration is to build an empire in his likeness and to bring back the glory of Russia. See, in America and in other Western countries, we look at this and we're just baffled by it. And the reason that we're baffled by it is because we think, well, people in Russia were living decent, comfortable lives and they were able to watch Netflix and able to go to the store and buy clothes for a decent price and, and get groceries. And so I don't see why they'd want anything else. That's not the way most people think. In America, we see comfort as one of our highest values. We see ease and convenience as one of our highest values. Other people don't think that way. They would far rather have glory. They would, they would far rather make their mark on the world than they would have those things. They want to be relevant. And if you look at that from the spiritual standpoint, the way that the Christian would look at it, the way that we're supposed to look at it, is that our worth comes from doing the work of the kingdom and, and being right in God's side and having a right relationship with them. But again, don't just assume that because that's the way you think that that's the way other people think. And it's certainly not the way that the Russians think. And so with that, and with that knowledge of that history and understanding how the enemy thinks, that helps give you a little bit of insight into why they're doing this and what they're going to do next. But in the same way that it was incredibly stupid of America to try to convince Ukraine to disarm, 
And even though I'm not trying to kick anybody when they're down, it was incredibly stupid of the Ukrainian administration at that point to agree to disarm. Again, it's, it's far better to have nukes yourself, even if they're less, than have to depend on somebody else to defend you. Especially a, a government like ours, where administrations and Congress changes constantly. And I'm not saying that that's a bad thing. I'm just saying that that's a reality that they needed to consider, that there would be somebody that wasn't Bill Clinton, even though I don't like Bill Clinton. There would be somebody that was not Bill Clinton that was not beholden to that promise by the time that Russia actually started acting aggressively. They should have uh, considered that. But another incredibly dumb thing they did, and this is the reason why I'm an absolutionist when it comes to the Second Amendment. I'm not saying that if basically every civilian and farmer in Ukraine was armed, that Vladimir Putin wouldn't have tried to invade anyway. But you better believe that somebody who thinks in cost versus benefit analyses the way that Putin does, somebody that is a strategist the way he is, wouldn't have to reconsider his strategy if every farmer up in the hills in Ukraine had a rifle. That if everybody's got an AR-15 and every single time his soldiers make even a minor advancement, they got to be on the lookout for snipers hiding in the hills, that that body count, that toll is going to be far higher. Now, it's not much of a consideration when you're considering big military targets, like when they, you know, launch a missile at an airport in Ukraine. But the thing is, that only goes so far. I mean, is it something that's incredibly harmful to cripple any air support or air capabilities that Ukrainian military has? Yeah, it absolutely is. But the thing is, at a certain point, you got to occupy them if you want to take over the country. And you can't march troops into there if literally the entire way they have to be looking out for snipers, not necessarily from people that are actually soldiers, but just regular civilians that are going to stop it. For example, we're here in Montgomery, Alabama. Do you have any idea how long it would take to, to how long it would take a foreign invading force to take the state of Alabama? It'd take forever because when they got to Montgomery, you know, it'd take them a few weeks to secure that because there's people that are armed here in Montgomery. And then they'd move on to Pike Road and Wetumpka and Prattville, and that'd take up a few more weeks because those people are armed too. And so it was also incredibly stupid for Ukraine to disarm its citizens and make it illegal to own a firearm in Ukraine unless you had some kind of special license. That was not a smart move either. And the reason that America has never been invaded by a foreign force, with the exception of the Civil War, depending on how you define foreign force, of course, it was... Americans fighting Americans in that one. But the point is, uh, everybody had guns on both sides in that conflict. But the reason that Japan, for example, did not invade California, I mean, now it probably wouldn't have as much resistance, but back then, because they knew that anywhere from a third to a half of the population had guns and would use them. Even as non-military people, as civilians, it's still very difficult to occupy an armed citizenry. And so I'm not saying that this wouldn't have happened if their citizenship was armed, but I am saying that it would certainly work as a deterrent if that were the case. Putin would have to redo the math on that one for sure. And it would certainly be harder for them to occupy major urban areas if literally any window they're passing by in any building on any given day could have a sniper in it. That is something that is very difficult for them to do. Even just a, a very small ragtag group of, of militia could get together and do some guerrilla attacks and do really some pretty severe damage. 
And so because of that, that's really the only way that a smaller population can overtake or drive out a country or a military with a much larger population is to have the average person. You have no idea who's armed and who isn't. And so that's another thing that really could have, have stopped a lot here. But one thing that I've seen a lot of people talking about, and I'll try to go through this quickly, is what's going on between, you know, if, if Trump was in office, we wouldn't have this problem. And then I've had people on the other side try to rebut with, well, you know, really, and I can't believe someone actually tried to make this argument with a straight face. Yeah, Trump, nothing happened with him under four years with Vladimir Putin. But really what was going on there is he was getting everything he wanted with Trump anyway. And so there was no reason for him to invade because, and again, they actually tried to make this, this case with me with a straight face. You see, what was going on there is he was getting everything he wanted in terms of weakening Ukraine anyway. And so he really had no reason to invade. That's a load of office. Do you really think that there is anything that Vladimir Putin wouldn't trade for having control of Ukraine? If Trump was really a Russian cat's paw, then he would have invaded when Trump was in office because he wouldn't have to worry about any repercussions if Trump was just going to do whatever he said. The reason that Putin did not want to invade is not because Trump was a brilliant military strategist, and it wasn't because he was convinced that Trump was going to go scorched earth on him the second that there was any kind of conflict. The reason that he did not want to invade while Trump was in office is because Trump is a wild card. He's unpredictable. And the fact that he is unpredictable, that makes people hesitant to do things that would mess with him. Again, that's not to say that you know, Trump wasn't General Patton. I'm not saying that he was, but he didn't like to be pushed around. And if nothing else to protect his own ego and his own appearance, he was not about to let something like this happen, if nothing else, because it would hurt his poll numbers. Now, I think that Trump really would be concerned genuinely. But what I'm saying is that was part of the calculation, too. You see, Putin struck at exactly the right time. Because he knows right now American politicians and to some degree European politicians, depending on the country, are far more concerned with the upcoming election than they are about what happens to Ukraine. I mean, considering that Biden was willing to sell out his own country to the Chinese and the Ukrainians, do you really think that he's going to go out of his way and do something that could potentially sink his already low poll numbers and lose, you know, a chance of, of having a re-election bid right now? Of course he's not. That's why Putin struck when he did. One, because he knows that if Republicans do retake the House and the Senate, that there might actually be more blowback than just what President Biden is going to do. And the second half of that is, he knows that if he strikes right now, the cost-benefit analysis that Joe Biden has to go through is going to say that the cost is far greater than any benefit. Because, again, they're thinking from the perspective of, well, really, all we have to do is, is inconvenience Russia. I mean, Vladimir Putin's got to be over there like, you'll think slight inconvenience is going to take me from taking Ukraine? Really? This is not the way these people think. Sanctions? Having higher gas prices for a little while, especially when Russia, I think, is the second or third greatest exporter of uh, fossil fuels, natural gas, crude oil, that kind of thing. 
I mean, yeah, is the uh, pipeline going to be not completed for a little while because of this? Sure. But that's a drop in the bucket compared to Russia, what they feel like they're gaining by taking over Ukraine. And the reason for that is Ukraine is Europe's breadbasket. It would be like America losing Indiana. Could we continue to feed ourselves without Indiana? Sure, we could, theoretically. But it would really affect our food prices, and it's one of the most food, like, it has the richest soil. I think Ukraine is home to the world's third or fourth richest soil in the world, and Indiana is, like, second. And so that's the breadbasket. That's where Europe grows their food. And so having that abundance, especially considering a lot of Russia is a frozen wasteland, uh, Russia having control of the breadbasket of Europe is actually far more important than controlling the fuel, which they kind of already do. But if they control Ukraine, not only do they have agricultural power, but they also diversify the amount of energy they're able to export. Because Ukraine also has a pretty abundant uh, natural resources when it comes to energy, but they have different forms of energy than Russia does. They're, they're a little bit more, if I'm not mistaken, a little bit more natural gas rich, and they have different minerals that, that Russia doesn't. And so because of that, they're actually gaining quite a bit in, in Ukraine. That helps their economy substantially. And most importantly, it allows them to feed themselves. And so... Once you understand that, and once you understand that differentiation, you get the calculus for doing that. But when it comes to the Trump versus versus Biden thing, I think really the telling thing that showed the reason that, that Biden's falling down on the job here. I mean, you had just, a, what was it, a week, two weeks ago that he was saying that, oh, a minor incursion, we're really not going to do anything. Putin took that to mean, oh, well, that means green light. You know, th that was that was the big signal saying, Look, Putin, you invade right now, we ain't going to do anything to you. Whether it was true or not, Biden didn't need to say it. And this press conference that he had today, he had a very telling sign where he said, um, look, Russia has to basically determine right now if they want to uh, continue on the path that they're on and continue their march towards being a second-rate power. Well, here's the thing about that. First of all, shouldn't America have been concerned with making sure that they were a second-rate power before this? And second, and perhaps even more importantly, this is Russia increasing their power. If this gambit works, and I hope that it doesn't, but if this gambit actually works and they take over Ukraine, they've increased their power, not decreased it. They've increased their influence, not decreased it. And you throwing a little puny economic sanctions on them, even if they're severe sanctions, it's not going to greatly decrease their power standing on the world stage. I mean, basically all that's been done so far is everybody has come out and say, uh, we condemn this in the strongest sense. Oh, really? Okay. I mean, that's like a guy robs your house and you show up the next day is like, well, I'm real disappointed that you robbed my house. Yeah, but if you're not going to do anything about it, then what's the deterrent? Like that's to think that Putin actually cares whether or not the US or the UK or Germany or the EU, do you think that he's real worried about his reputation as oh no, do not do not condemn my actions. It's not a concern with this guy. The dude really is a Bond villain. Like if you see his house and the way that he presents himself, 
he's dedicated to making himself into a James Bond villain. But anyway, if you want to look at the, the Trump versus Biden thing, really, that's the summary of it right there. Trump was unpredictable. And what's more important is that he was negotiating from a position of power. Why? Because the number one thing that Russia actually does care about when it comes to their economy and their power is the, their ability to control the energy trade in Europe. And when it came to negotiations between him and Trump, Trump could actually negotiate from a position of power. Now, whether or not that negotiation went well or not, that's a whole different thing. There were some pretty severe criticisms that I had of President Trump when that took place. However, one of the reasons that makes him far more, he puts him in a far better set of circumstances than Biden did is that we were energy independent at the time. And because we were energy independent, you know, Trump could say, uh, well, it'd be a shame if all of a sudden we started increasing fuel prices. Know what I'm saying? Booty boot. Like that's something that Trump could say. And then that bottoms out the oil prices because we have increased supply, decreased demand. And then if, you know, all of a sudden those condemnations from other countries mean something because Germany can just buy oil from America. Germany can buy, or uh, UK can buy oil from America. France can buy oil. They don't really need it because they have nuclear power, but they, they can buy that stuff from America. And so because of that, and because we weren't pursuing this idiotic Green New Deal and Build Back Better garbage, that's far more concerned with making sure that the planet is green and uh, we're, we're far more worried about what Greta Thunberg thinks about us than we are what Vladimir Putin thinks about us. Because we were pursuing those goals as opposed to our own national security and the security of the world, we wind up in this situation. Because all of a sudden, you know, if Putin doesn't have nearly the money and resources and the control of the fuel industry in that country, his threats to cut other people off from their fuel supply is also significantly decreased. And so by increasing our own influence, it decreases theirs. And unfortunately, that zero-sum game is one that Putin for the past year and a half has been winning. I mean, there's a reason that Biden greenlit the Nordstrom pipeline uh, that ran from Russia to Germany and immediately killed the Keystone pipeline running from Canada to America. Perfectly fine with Putin getting what he wants and increasing in that money, but the United States shouldn't dare uh, get any of that because, you know, fuel very bad. Fossil fuel is very bad. That's as far as the calculation went in his addled aging brain. And so that's re really where we are. So that really leaves me with sort of the, the problem with the isolationist in me. Is what do we do now? What's the calculation? What is the cost-benefit analysis for Americans? And I really think that the calculation should come down to this. It's cheaper to stop it now than it is later. Not only do we need to uphold our word, like I was talking about earlier, because we're the ones that promised that if Russia ever started acting aggressively against Ukraine, that we were going to be the guys to back them up. We need to do that for our relationship with Ukraine, for our relationship with everybody else, so they know that when we say something, we actually mean it. But most importantly, because it's far cheaper to stop it now than it is later. If we can take military action against Russia and end it now, that's a lot easier than having to undo this quagmire later. I'm not saying it won't be costly. 
I'm not saying that it's not going to be a problem on the international stage, but what I'm saying is that cost is cheaper now than it will ever be in the future. If we wait even a month, it's going to be significantly more costly to do this. You know, in the fog of war and in the confusion that is happening right now, Russia can still be taken by surprise. And we can drive them out of Ukraine. I'm not even saying necessarily we have to attack Russian soil, even though I don't think that that should be off the table. And even if it is off the table, we shouldn't tell them that it's off the table. You don't telegraph your punches. But if all this means is taking the forces that we have now and trying to secure Ukraine, that is the bare minimum of what we should be doing. There needs to be a message sent to Putin that because we're the ones that disarmed them, we are willing to pay a price in order to keep them safe and to keep Putin, you know, toiling away in his frozen tundra. Because if we fail to do that, if you let the if you let the bully pound on you for a year, that one time that you do stand up for yourself, he can perceive that as a flash in the pan. If the first time that he messes with you, you punch him in the mouth, even if you can't win the fight, if you made him pay a price for doing that, he thinks twice about doing it on day two. And if we do not fix this problem here, make no mistake, Putin's stated goal is getting the USSR back together. If that is the goal, then Russia is a first step, not a last one. Sorry, Ukraine is a first step, not a last one. Taking over that country, making these incursions, and taking over the country as a whole is a first step, not a last one. If we do not do something here, especially when we have a vested interest in, because we're the ones that disarmed them originally, then Putin knows we're not going to defend him with other countries. I heard Biden at his press conference saying that if he invaded NATO, there would be a severe penalty to pay and we would get involved. Uh, yeah, but you kind of said that earlier with Ukraine. Like you said that there was going to be a harsh reaction if Vladimir Putin tried to do anything with Ukraine and if he tried a full-scale invasion. Yeah, well, the full-scale invasion's here and you're not doing anything. And so Putin knows that that's an empty threat. That's the problem here. Putin called our bluff. And it's abundantly clear now that it is a bluff. That we never had any intention of backing the Ukrainians up. And if we continue down that road, then Putin knows that any bluff we make in the future, that's probably a bluff too. <sighs> Elections have consequences. And the fact that we elected a decrepit weakling and put him in the White House, I'm not saying that Trump was my favorite person, nor do I think he would be the best person to handle this conflict. I'm not saying that. But the fact that we put a decrepit weakling that is a, a creature of the Senate, a creature of the swamp that Putin knows he can play like a fiddle because he deals with people like this all the time. He knows what motivates Biden. I mean, heck, he had the Ukrainians themselves putting piles of cash in his son's hand and he doesn't pay a penalty for it. He knows what motivates this guy. And he knows exactly how he thinks. And because of that, he knows how he can push him around. Trump, at the very least, whether you like him or hate him, and whether you like his personality or not, and I don't really care for his personality either, I get that. But whether you love him or hate him, he was just wily enough and had just enough of a twitchy eye to get Putin to think twice about screwing with him. And furthermore, 
his ability to push back on Putin was far greater because of our energy independence and our economy versus the way that it is now when we've got Biden at the helm. Guys, before I go, all I'd ask is that you you continue to pray for the brother, brothers and sisters in Christ that we have over there. The Ukrainians are fantastic people. They're very similar in a lot of ways to Americans. And, uh, I mean, just to be perfectly frank, it kills me that because some Bond villain wannabe has delusions of grandeur that people that I love are going to get hurt. People that I care about are, are going to pay a penalty for this man's ego. But that's the kind of fallen world that we live in, east of Eden. I, I don't know exactly what to do right now. I'm still looking at some options. But, you know, for now, prayer is what's needed most. And I, I don't want to make it sound like prayer is the only thing that we can do because it is the best thing that we can do. It is the most important thing we can do. It, it is a first resort, not a last one. And I want to make that clear. But I pray that something manifests over the next few days for private citizens to be able to help out because. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm just being a little too cynical, but I don't see the West really doing anything. I don't see us helping at all. But the thing is, I'm a libertarian. I expect the government to fail me. At some point, it's going to come up to us. It's going to be up to us to do something. Just pray that when we do, it's not too late. Stay the course, friends. Thank you for listening to the Tactics Podcast. Tactics is a production of Not Ashamed Media. Any opinions expressed on this program are those of the host and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of our business partners or sponsors. Graphics by Jessica Dawson. Video production by Jackson Dean. Broadcast studio provided by Faulkner University. Location studio provided by Delreda Church of Christ. Copyright 2021.